Part 2, Section 7 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arturo J.R. 17. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy. Section 24. There was no peace now for Colonel and Mrs. Ercott. They felt themselves conspirators, and of conspiracy they had never had the habit. Yet how could they openly deal with anxieties which had arisen solely from what they had chanced secretly to see? What was not intended for one's eyes and ears did not exist. No canon of conduct could be quite so sacred. As well defend the opening of another person's letters as admit the possibility of making use of adventitious knowledge. So far, tradition, and indeed character, made them feel at one and conspire freely. But they diverged on a deeper plane. Mrs. Ercott had said, indeed, that here was something which could not be controlled. The colonel had felt it. A very different thing. Less tolerant in theory, he was touched at heart. Mrs. Urquhart, in theory almost approving. She read that dangerous authoress, George Eliot. At heart felt cold towards her husband's niece. For these reasons, they could not in fact conspire without, in the end, saying suddenly, Well, it's no good talking about it, and almost at once begin to talk about it again. In proposing to her that mule, the colonel had not had time, or, rather, not quite conviction enough as to his line of action, to explain so immediately the new need for her to sit upon it. It was only when, to his somewhat strange relief, she had refused the expedition, and Olive had started without them, that he told her of the meeting in the gardens, of which he had been witness. She then said at once that if she had known she would, of course, have put up with anything in order to go, not because she approved of interfering, but because they must think of Robert. And the colonel had said, Damn the fellow! And there the matter had rested for the moment, for both of them were wondering a little which fellow it was that he had damned. That indeed was the trouble. If the colonel had not cared so much about his niece, and had liked instead of rather disliking Cremier, if Mrs. Urquhart had not found Mark Lennon a nice boy, and had not secretly felt her husband's niece rather dangerous to her peace of mind, if, in few words, those three had been puppets made of wood and worked by law, it would have been so much simpler for all concerned. It was the discovery that there was a personal equation in such matters instead of just a simple rule of three, which disorganized the colonel and made him almost angry, which depressed Mrs. Urquhart and made her almost silent. These two good souls had stumbled on a problem which has divided the world from birth. Shall cases be decided on their individual merits or according to formal codes? Beneath an appearance and a vocabulary more orthodox than ever, the colonel's allegiance to authority and the laws of form was really shaken. He simply could not get out of his head 
the sight of those two young people sitting side by side, nor the tone of Olive's voice when she had repeated his regrettable words about happiness at home. If only the thing had not been so human. If only she had been someone else's niece, it would clearly have been her duty to remain unhappy. As it was, the more he thought, the less he knew what to think. A man who had never had any balance to speak of at his bank, and from the nomadic condition of his life, had no exaggerated feeling for a settled social status, deeming society, in fact, rather a bore. He did not unduly exaggerate the worldly dangers of this affair. Neither did he honestly believe that she would burn in everlasting torment if she did not succeed in remaining true to that great black chap, as he secretly called Cramier. His feeling was simply that it was an awful pity, a sort of unhappy conviction that it was not like the women of his family to fall upon such ways, that his dead brother would turn in his grave, in two words that it was not done. Yet he was by no means of those who, giving latitude to women in general, fall with whips on those of their own family who take it. On the contrary, believing that woman in general should be stainless to the world's eye, he was inclined to make allowance for any individual woman that he knew and loved. A suspicion he had always entertained that Cramier was not, by breeding, quite the clean potato, may insensibly have influenced him just a little. He had heard indeed that he was not even entitled to the name of Cramier, but had been adopted by a childless man who had brought him up and left him a lot of money. There was something in this that went against the grain of the childless colonel. He had never adopted, nor been adopted by anyone himself. There was a certain lack about a man who had been adopted of reasonable guarantee. He was like a non-vintage wine or a horse without a pedigree. You could not quite rely on what he might do, having no tradition in his blood. His appearance, too, and manner somehow lent color to this distrust. A touch of the tar brush somewhere, and a stubborn, silent, pushing fellow. Why on earth had Olive ever married him? But then women were such kittle-cattle, poor things. And old Lindsay, with his vestments and his views on obedience, must have been a tartar as a father, poor old chap. Besides, Cremier, no doubt, was what most women would call good-looking, more taking to the eye than such a quiet fellow as young Lennon, whose features were rather, anyhow, though pleasant enough, and with a nice smile, the sort of young man one could not help liking, and who certainly would never hurt a fly. And suddenly there came the thought. Why should he not go to young Lennon and put it to him straight? That he was in love with Olive? Not quite, but the way to do it would come to him. He brooded long over this idea, and spoke of it to Mrs. Urquhart while shaving the next morning. Her answer? My dear John Bosch, removed his last doubt. Without saying where he was going, he strolled out the moment after breakfast, and took a train to Beaulieu. At the young man's hotel he sent in his card, and was told that this monsieur had already gone out for the day. 
his mood of marching straight up to the guns thus checked. He was left pensive and distraught. Not having seen Beaulieu, they spoke of it then as a coming place, he made his way up an incline. That whole hillside was covered with rose trees. Thousands of these flowers were starring the lower air, and the strewn petals of blown and fallen roses covered the light soil. The colonel put his nose to blossoms here and there, but they had little scent, as if they knew that the season was already over. A few blue-bloused peasants were still busy among them, and suddenly he came on young Lenin himself, sitting on a stone and dabbing away with his fingers at a lump of putty stuff. The colonel hesitated. Apart from obvious reasons for discomfiture, he had that feeling towards art common to so many of his caste. It was not work, of course, but it was very clever, a mystery to him how anyone could do it. On seeing him, Lenin had risen, dropping his handkerchief over what he was modeling, but not before the colonel had received a dim impression of something familiar. The young man was very red. The colonel, too, was conscious suddenly of the heat. He held out his hand. Nice quiet place, this, he stammered. Never seen it before. I called at your hotel. Now that he had his chance, he was completely at a loss. The sight of the face emerging from that lump of putty stuff had quite unnerved him. The notion of this young man working at it up here all by himself, just because he was away an hour or two from the original, touched him. How on earth to say what he had come to say? It was altogether different from what he had thought. And it suddenly flashed through him. Dolly was right. She's always right. Hang it. You're busy, he said. I mustn't interrupt you. Not at all, sir. It was awfully good of you to look me up. The colonel stared. There was something about young Lennon that he had not noticed before. A don't-take-liberties-with-me look that made things difficult. But still he lingered, staring wistfully at the young man, who stood waiting with such politeness. Then a safe question shot into his mind. Ah, and when do you go back to England? We're off on Tuesday. While he spoke, a puff of wind lifted the handkerchief from the mottled face. Would the young fellow put it back? He did not, and the colonel thought. It would have been bad form. He knew I wouldn't take advantage. Yes, he's a gentleman. Lifting his hand to the salute, he said, Well, I must be getting back. See you at dinner, perhaps? And turning on his heel, he marched away. The remembrance of that face in the putty stuff up there by the side of the road accompanied him home. It was bad. It was serious. And the sense that he counted for nothing in all of it grew and grew in him. He told no one of where he had been. When the colonel turned with ceremony and left him, Lennon sat down again on the flat stone, took up his putty stuff, and presently effaced that image. He sat still a long time, to all appearance watching the little blue butterflies playing round the red and tawny roses. Then his fingers began to work. 
feverishly shaping ahead. Not of a man, not of a beast, but a sort of horned, heavy mingling of the two. There was something frenetic in the movement of those rather short, blunt-ended fingers, as though they were strangling the thing they were creating. End of section 24